Welcome to Meditations with Zohar. I'm here with Anna Gatt, who is the founder and CEO of Interintellect, which is a global community of thinkers and seekers who come together in person and also over the internet to discuss questions that are of uh, lively concern to them. And I think of Interintellect, um, I am a veteran host myself, as a kind of alternative or supplement to academia, uh, a venue for people who love learning for its own sake um, and who want to make it part of their life, uh, a place for them to go uh, without necessarily having to go for a degree uh, where people have graduated from college and they want to work, but they still love reading great books and doing it in community. So I think it's a fantastic service and I'm, I'm pleased for a great conversation ahead. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. This is a kind of dream come true. I remember when you started this podcast and I felt... Finally, <laughs> that was my one thought. <laughs> You've got a fascinating background, Anna, um, as someone who grew up in Hungary, uh, the former Soviet Union, and who's lived in a lot of different places. You've lived in England. You've lived in France. I think you've maybe you've lived in Brussels. You've you've traveled a lot for work. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how different places have changed your being in the world or made an imprint on you, um, and also just what travel and changing place has done for your sense of what it means to to be right now in 2022. That's so interesting that you start with this. So I was not born in the former Soviet Union. I was born in Hungary, which was a satellite state. Um, it had at least uh, on the surface its own um, own government and, uh, and its own system. Um, I kind of caught the last couple of years of communism. I don't really have um, direct memories of that. But I do think that growing up in, like, or, or having some sense of those last years, and then growing up in post-communist Eastern Europe, and seeing, um, you know, that kind of abundance and then deterioration of the abundance um, firsthand, uh, left a great imprint on me and kind of fine-tuned my values um, that I hold so deeply today. Um, so I was born in Hungary. I went to high school, partly in France. I went to uh, university in Budapest and in, in London. Uh, today, I split my time between Europe and the US, um, but I, I do live in Europe. So I currently identify as a West European, uh, although somehow some some kind of a digital nomad as well. It's a you know I'm like this is a post post COVID millennial lifestyle. Uh, I don't have a better word uh, for it. Um, I've always been fascinated by, uh, by language and discourse and people shaping reality. My parents made TV series when I was growing up, they worked on it together. And one of my first experiences in life, um, was, you know, every Sunday, a bunch of people coming to our apartment and sitting in our kitchen, um, and everybody from the DOP to the script girl with their notebooks and their pens basically putting together a television live on the spot, agreeing how to build it. And then they would go off and actually like shoot the episode, shoot the, shoot the, 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 the TV series, uh, which then millions and millions of people would watch. Uh, this was at the time when there was like one and then two TV channels in the entire country uh, in the late 80s. Um, so if you were on Saturday evenings, every single person um, who had a television had to watch you. Um, so it was a kind of a, a level of fame and, and prominence that I think we no longer, we can't even really imagine it anymore uh, because you don't have such um, dominant uh, information channels um, in our lives anymore, or, or we have them differently. Um, so that was a very important thing to me. And I think, um, you know, I mean, I, I spent my 20s working mainly in the arts. I worked in music where I really used my organization skills and I was putting together bands and managing, creative producing a bunch of things and building audiences. Um, I did the same thing then for writers and, and NGOs as well, because I kind of hacked how to do it. And then I thought, oh, actually, you can do this anywhere. Um, but I also had a very... Uh, active uh, artistic life myself and I uh, I wrote a number of screenplays I was in in development labs at the Locarno Film Festival at Berlinale talents in Berlin um, 
European shorts, a bunch of things. I won minor awards. Um, I actually got into the um, London University on a scholarship with uh, some of my writing. Um, and, and I also worked a lot on film. Um, and then I started working differently with both dialogue and discourse. First, um, as a screenwriter, I started helping investigative journalists in Eastern Europe uh, with like secretly recorded tapes. So this guy in a suit would like bring them to my house on a CD and then they would leave me alone with it for like 24 hours. And I had to transcribe and like give a kind of character analysis who I think had the recording device in his or her bag, what the whole kind of psychological setup is, which was really interesting. It made me read more about like the neuroscience of dialogue, how people use language. Um, and I also started working very seriously with a bunch of other writers as, um, as an advisor, as a dramaturg, as a script doctor, um, which kind of sent me down um, the rabbit holes of, of how to write good dialogue for fiction. Um, and in parallel to that, I was working um, with the Jewish Cultural Institute um, in Budapest. We were putting together a bunch of really, really big events. And I actually ended up co-founding uh, Hungary's then leading women's rights platform, which was called Uvek Plafon, where our job was to basically bring together four or five people from very, very different worldviews and, and disciplines to discuss women's rights in a very accessible, everyday manner that anybody walking in from the street can understand and, and identify with and you know, feel empowered to look for solutions together. Um, and so when the 2015, 2016 kind of series of cataclysms um, found me already as a basically political immigrant in, in London, um, I felt to some degree equipped to do something, but also I just felt so strongly motivated to just stop trying to be this, you know, meta level person who like, I was teaching at university, I was writing things, I was writing articles, blah, 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 and just build something, just do something myself, because I felt that this is a moment when everybody who has any idea of where this might be going, which I did because I had already left Hungary for these reasons, needs to like build on this knowledge and just use that motivation to, to ensure that it doesn't happen anywhere else. And I literally sat down and looked at my own CV, like, okay, I'm 31. What, what can I do? What the hell do I know? Do I even know anything? I'm an intellectual. Do I know stuff? You can have a really good conversation with me about anything for like five minutes, but that's it. Um, and then I kind of like created this Venn diagram, like, okay, I understand like dialogue writing and Aristotelian and Robert McKee rules on like how to give a constructive exchange to two fictional characters. Do fictional characters exist? No. Do they need to have better dialogues? No. Do humans exist? Yeah. Do they need to have? Yeah. So I was like, what am I doing? Um, and then I looked at all my experiences in the, with the NGOs and, you know, putting together stages and putting excellent people there um, and how that bit by bit, night by night can transform culture and what people expect culture to be and what quality and a normal attendee expects uh, to see. Um, and very, very slowly, I basically started exploring different ways of how I could get involved and how I could help with a gigantic imposter syndrome and my good old Eastern European inferiority complex, where you always feel that you shouldn't be in this room. You don't know anything. What am I doing here? I'm too old. I'm too young. I'm too tall. I'm too small. You know, whatever is your problem on the day. Um, and I just thought, okay, this is bigger than me the little bad voices in my head needs to need to just shut up. And, and I basically got down to work six years ago and I haven't got up ever since. Like I'm currently sitting in my kitchen and I worked since I got up and I will work until I go to bed. And this is the best thing I've ever done. It's so moving. That last thing you said reminded me of a quip that I came to when I used to say, uh, you know, who are you to do X? And then I would, I would often um, counter, you know, but who are you not to? So I think there there can be an arrogance as well to not acting, and so I I appreciate the humility actually needed to say yeah, I feel like an imposter, but I'm going to do this anyways. That that's a very important thing to to be able to do. Yeah, Eric Weinstein said on one of his podcasts, I think that you know, I think he was talking about Francis Crick, that um, you know, if you want to do something great, you are by default too small to do it. Like, let's get over this. Like, this is, um, 
you know, this is like, this, this is not the part that you have to uh, decide on in advance. I think what I had in mind and what I didn't know before, and this is something that's kind of becoming a little bit clearer to me these days, is that a lot of people are intimidated by wanting to do something great or, you know, there being a great problem and they feel the audacity to try to tackle it. But what I felt when I started the journey that later on in like three years led to Interintellect was that I will start building solutions for this gigantic problem. And actually, I will find out how great I am whilst building it, because you can only build something as great as you are. What did you think the problem was and how has the problem changed? Like, it sounds like the problem was something about not being able to have good dialogue. Is that still the main problem or have you discovered sort of other problems? And is it is it one big problem you're trying to tackle or is it now a handful of sort of like a web of problems that are all interrelated, <laughs> interintellected? I, I tend to approach this question from two different angles. One is, and I kind of have my own answers to them, and maybe, you know, maybe I will change my mind in a couple of years as I gather more data, but this is what I think today in, in 2022. So on the one hand, at first I thought, and this was my first company, which was trying to build an AI-mediated chat app to keep private conversations more peaceful, because I thought, you know, a lot of the public discourse, you know, tensions first arise in, in, in private conversation. So let's go there. Let's like help you and your uncle to have a better conversation. This was like a typical 2016 idea with all the chat bots and the, you know, NY times announcing every day, the apocalypse. So it was that, that, that kind of vibe. Um, and, and I was kind of, you know, diligently researching it and I had a night job. So I would go to work at like 10 30 at night and I would finish at 6 30 in the morning. I was a financial editor. So I was looking at incoming breaking news during the night for one and a half years. And I would go home, sleep a few hours and then get up and, and work on the startup. Um, and so I did a lot of my personal research and I really put in a lot of time and my own funds, my non-existent funds at the time to just like really find out what the hell is going on. And, and you know, it took me a while to understand that, okay, actually... One, you don't have to intervene, like you don't have to build inter products of intervention because people are very decent. And if you have a good space where, um, you know, good behavior is rewarded by the rules of the game, then people will be amazing. So Interintact is becoming this space in people's lives, like, I don't know, going to a theater or church or, you know, a conference that of course, you know, there are times in your life when you're in your sweatpants, but then you put on some nice clothes when you go to the theater. So this is what interintact is becoming. And I do believe that if you go enough to the theater in your life or in places where you can be at your best, that will overall influence how your life is turning out and what your general kind of mood and, and, and what the, the general you know atmosphere of your life um, uh, is. Um, and the other thing was that you know, public discourse sounds really daunting as a big, big problem to solve. Um, and I thought, okay, so what if I, instead of trying to change the whole public arena, other than this little corner of the internet that is interintellect, where I can guarantee that, you know, the rules are great and the vibe is great. What if we just helped better people to be in the public arena? What if we ran around the world and tried to like raise people's aspirations and give them tools to just get out there and in a very safe and supportive environment, grow as public thinkers and makers? Is it possible that one of the reasons why public discourse is not necessarily the best place to be in the world right now, that it's not always the best people? Um, the, the selection mechanisms are still, it's becoming a little bit better, but given how vast and rich the internet is, it's still pretty prehistoric, <laughs> you know, in many, many ways in which gatekeeping and, and institutions work that select these people. And then once somebody is a public intellectual, it's impossible to get rid of them. Like it's like a lifetime tenure. Um, and I don't, I also don't agree with that. Um, and so I just started working on, on, on that very, very strongly. Um, and yeah, that's, that was kind of, that was kind of the, I, I think the, the, the general, the general thought process. Does that mean you're kind of democratic in the sense that like anybody can play these rules and thrive under them? Or do you, 
have a pessimistic, I mean, now I'm projecting, but um, what do you, what do you say to the pessimistic sort of thought or person who says, you know, um, the kinds of people who want to go to the theater have already selected for certain virtues. Um, but like most of society just doesn't want to go to the theater, doesn't want to be at their best, or they define being at their best as being in a state of like martial mobilization and like dunking on one's opponents as opposed to sort of collaborating in a, in a mutual search for truth or understanding or something like this. Like, do you have a take on human nature? I do have a take on human nature. And I think, I think when it comes to culture, a lot of the, uh, the elements that human nature seems to be displaying uh, come down to standards and how flexible our standards are. And so when I was when I first realized that I was not going to build the app early 2019, that I was going to build a space and that I was going to try to rebuild the semi-public space that with my background and knowledge so far, I think where I think the democratic values are sustained in a society. And I'm happy to kind of go into this um, uh, after. So when I started researching that and when I realized that this was going to be what I would be building, uh, I immediately noticed that there are eras when people just have higher standards when it comes to culture. Not always and not everybody, but that there are eras where there is better television for some reason or better movies or better books or people expect their journalists to be really eloquent and be able to use syntax. Um, There are eras where people expect or eras and places um, that people expect to provide them with open university lectures where they can just walk in, sit down, and if we go back in history, light a cigarette, put up their fit, and listen to set. Um, and then there are eras where we forget this and we think that, no, culture is supposed to be really crap and popcorn movies and superheroes and nonsensical song lyrics and unwatchable TV programming. Um, And I think where I see cultural curators coming in handy, (laughs) cultural curators like myself, is to say, guys, there's better stuff out there. Can we watch that? Like, why, why should we have, like, we are living between five Michelin star restaurants. Why are we going to the McDonald's? And it's, it's a, like five affordable Michelin star restaurants. And so I was like, all right, then I will just like be the best place on the internet to find the really affordable intellectual Michelin star restaurants and send people there. Um, and the people who frequent internet salons these days, usually they are in multiple communities. So it shows that there is this curiosity. If you get internet like peeled. Like you come in, you realize, oh my God, this this is going on on the internet. Where have I been all this time? Like, this is amazing. <laughs> and then they just keep coming. I mean, you get the best content live interactive with you included for like 10 bucks. I think that's pretty amazing. Um, and so I see a lot of, I don't think that the, the, the kind of telos of the media is not to change people. It's to show the best stuff out there um, and show you the way to get there and, 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 and consume it. Um, I do believe that once somebody has been um, uh, engaged uh, with the best thinkers, makers, artists, doers, if they have become that person themselves, they might go back to, I don't know, troll each other anonymously on Reddit, or I don't know (laughs) where else they happen to be. Um, But it's not going to be the only thing in their lives. And if you're engaging with a person, or if you're, you know, getting the votes from a person, or if your child is being taught by a person, or if the bus is that you're traveling on is being driven by a person who both does the anonymous nonsense on the internet, but they also go to you know, a reading group where they read contemporary novels or they are learning a new language or they are just hanging out at an inter-intellect game night with like lovely people from all over the world who think very differently from them, then you, you are probably better off as a fellow citizen and vice versa. My head is spinning because, so one of my questions is just um, what makes for a good culture or sort of what allows a person to determine whether a culture is better or worse. Um 
another question that came up. So I'm going to give you a menu, and you can riff on all of them, or 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 pick and you know pick from the chef's menu. But uh, something in what you said sounded kind of European in a way. Like I, I associate the defensive culture, especially high culture, with something like Europe and it's you know having history as opposed to America, which um, in some sense historically has celebrated the idea of like not being burdened by culture because we're always at the frontier. And I, I half remember a line from Hannah Arendt in one of her essays, I think it was on authority, where she contrasts the European dandy to like the American idiot. Um, and she says that like the, the, the European dandy sort of like burnishes the leather bound classics, but like only as a prop, you know, um, to sort of show off how cultured uh, she is. And the American idiot like just doesn't care, doesn't even know that there's like this thing that <laughs> he or she should, should like or, or find important. And then Arendt says something like, that she prefers the American who's unpretentious to the European who like talks the talk of culture, but doesn't actually sort of internalize or live it. So I guess I'd love your thoughts on any of those avenues. Wow. That's a lot of, that, there, there's a lot of layers to that. I mean, I do think that as for interintellect and probably a lot of other um, culture related startups, we are at the frontier. Um, I don't think that what interintellect is doing is about legacy culture. We're not museologists. We're not telling people what the correct interpretation of whatever is. Um, and I think we're also very generative. Most people in the community, like the community attached to Interintellect as the public platform, a lot of people in our community are very, very actively writing and podcasting and creating. So this is not culture as some kind of static archive. Um, and that's really, really important. Um, as for the American angle, I, the, in the, in the wonderful thinking the 20th century, which is Timothy Snyder's, uh, interview book with Tony Jott, who at the time was unable to write, um, anymore. And, and so it's a, it's a dialogue. It's beautiful. He also writes something about how different it was for him to teach at Cambridge where everybody just pretended to already know things. Um, and then when you actually like scratch the surface, nobody had read anything um, versus I think it was Berkeley where Tony Judd uh, was teaching at the time uh, or first um, and his pleasant shock at how Americans had not read some stuff and they were really happy to admit and then they would read it and then it would have an amazing discussion. Um, and I do think that in this sense, something happened on the internet in the past couple of years that kind of Americanized all of the world. So you have this kind of wide-eyed curiosity um, coming from everywhere. Like we have like 55% of interinsects market is in North America. 50% of that is the US. Um, but we have a huge community in Western Europe and in, in England as well, India, Asia, you know, it's it's Africa also is becoming more prominent. They just have people coming in and they are like, look, I went to school. Um, I read a bunch of the classics, but a lot I have not. I skipped. The same for me. I, there's a bunch of things I haven't read. Like nobody has read everything. And they are doing these reading groups and just go through it. And there's no shame to it. You're not showing off. All you want is you want to be able to think the thoughts for yourself that people who have read XYZ book can think. And to me, that's why these books exist. You don't read the Brothers Karamazov because you want to show off on Tinder. Maybe, yes, I don't know. <laughs> Probably those people still, uh, still exist, but it's it's something that enriches you as a person in, in ways that probably a bullet point filled medium post promising to make you millions would not be able to do. And, and I love that. And I, uh, all I do all day is to encourage people to, to be like that and do that. Um, I also think that if you want to write or podcast, you need to have this kind of um, humility. I mean, if you start writing a book, you will have to read a lot of other books in the meantime. You probably won't get very far thinking that you already know everything when you, when you start. I, I would imagine that somebody who, in a very humble way, continues research will produce better work at the end. I think that in many ways, interintellect has to be run by a European. If you look at 
the old-timey French salons of the 17th, 18th century. They were usually run by women, and in many, many cases, by women who were in some ways independent. Either independent in the sense that they were really unmarried and supporting themselves, you know, amongst the first women of letters, or they were independent in the sense that they had some super rich husband who just like lived in another country technically and didn't bother them. And so they, you know, at the time, women were neutral in the sense that you didn't own property yourself, you couldn't do a bunch of things. So you could get a bunch of people in your boudoir or wherever you were holding the salon and ask really tough questions because you were not in the game. You were not an adversary. You were not a rival. And if you look at the history of salons ever since then, there's all, also something of an outsider, you know, in the, the, the Americans, in Paris, Gertrude Stein, there's always some, something of, of, of the, something outsider-ish uh, about the salonist. And for me, the fact that, you know, I don't vote in the U.S., I don't even vote here in Belgium, where I'm currently podcasting with you, um, it's really important. Like I can, I can, I can kind of embody the, the neutrality that's needed to run a conversation that does not start with, you know, the game already rigged. These are really open conversations run by people who are either really fully culturally neutral, like myself, the triple immigrant from middle of nowhere, <laughs> um, or they are run by hosts who are trained in the art of the neutral facilitator and what that means in terms of, you know, your mental state and your behavior. I have actually become a much more patient and stoic person having hosted hundreds of salons myself on Interintellect, just because it puts you into this really open-minded um, observer position um, that you don't normally get in a conversation when you're one of the active participants, you know, with a point to make. Um, and I think a lot of these catharsis that happen during intersex salons where people really on the spot have great realizations or are making a great connection with somebody else. Um, I think the reason is because there is this benevolent neutrality to it. And by neutrality, I don't mean that there are no stakes we are talking about the most important things in life at interact events. It's very, very serious, but it's not serious in the sense that, you know, you arrive to a debate or a conversation and you feel that this has already been decided before it even starts. I resonate with neutrality. I might not use that word, but certainly as a, as a rabbi, I often find that I have the ear of people who wouldn't talk to one another. <laughs> but being a rabbi is a kind of third space uh, that people, you know, open up to that role because um, actually we all desire to have a place where we're not judged and where we're understood and where it's not always about winning or, you know, shaming our opponents and so on. So I, I certainly resonate with that. Um, getting back to the, the point about Americanization of culture and the internet. So, it strikes me that something like inter intellect could not have happened a generation or two or three ago. Um, and that that's not just because it has an online dimension though, you know, maybe it's related, but something about like the dialectic of how we relate to this topic of culture and being now in a moment of post postmodernism or post cynicism or something where um, people are more comfortable mixing and matching. People are more comfortable acknowledging that they have holes and that there's no shame in that. It seems like maybe there's a time of chaos that has allowed for these conversations in a way that before you had to choose a lane. So I don't know if you would agree with all of that, but how do you think about the evolution of the zeitgeist that has made it possible for something like interintellect to fill a need now? And what do you think was playing the role of interintellect a generation or two or three ago that interintellect is sort of succeeding or replacing, or if you want to even put it antagonistically, uh, I know you like the concept of neutrality, but disrupting. I like I like that you brought up chaos. I often feel that interintellect is a kind of haven from it all, and that people come to us seeking peace, um, which is I know it's a bit, bit of a paradox because. 
is in interns that can be a very challenging environment in the sense that sometimes you're you know confronted with completely new ideas, completely new you know, viewpoints. Uh, sometimes very difficult reading material. Um, but people come to us to know that it's okay, that it's fine, that you're fine. It's going to be fine. <laughs> it's good. We have each other. Um, we always, we will always have books. You can relax. We can put your feet up and just chill. You know, things like interact appear on the scene when there is a gap. Um, I think when it, when it comes to cultural er, arenas or areas, um, Indurance Act is filling two gaps, um, or one is cultural, the other is potentially political. Um, in terms of culture, the enormous kind of no man's land between STEM and the humanities was the thing. Um, and it's an enormous gap, not just in the sense that, oh, everybody does their own business and doesn't mind the others, which I think was probably the case like 30, 40 years ago. More like, no, you have a bunch of people in tech who are confronted with um, questions of ethics, design, culture on an everyday basis. And they might feel that, oh, maybe I, I should have read these things when I was younger. I didn't have time because I was like learning engineering 20 hours a day, but now is the time. Um, or you have people, you know, in the humanities or the social sciences who think, what am I talking about? Like my job is to, you know, understand culture and produce culture, but I don't understand the other side of the equation. I don't understand what society is doing anymore. And so there's this mutual, and I come from the humanities, so I really deeply understand that. And, you know, People are seeking ways to talk to each other because the world is really, really, really complicated. The old timey traditional interpreters of the world are gone or they are really just old and in many, many cases, you know, out of touch. Um, and we need to have insight into what everybody else is doing. Um, and, and, and the vocabulary so that we understand each other and can talk about what's happening without, you know, make, making the map into the territory. Like as a humanities major, you don't have to become an engineer to be able to understand what, what engineers are doing. Of course, if you fully want to understand it, then yes, but there can be, uh, there can be an exchange. And this is where, you know, the semi-public space, um, that I mentioned comes into, or comes in handy uh, in so many, so many ways. Um, for me, a semi-public space is where the two sides of you or me or anybody else uh, can come together to reconcile uh, what I call private language and public language. Um, I this, this is something that I, I noticed um, kind of growing up in late communism and then early post-communism, um, you know, in, in the kind of Václav Havel, um, nightmare of, uh, of late communism, you would have private language where with your friends, your spouse, your family, you would be often able to, you know, name things correctly and, and, and be truthful. Um, and then you had the outside world where language kind of lost its meaning and everything was really performative and everybody knew that everybody else also was lying, but still everybody kept up the theater. Um, and I think for, like the, the compromise that people at the time were seeking um, was that it's fine if I'm lying in the outside world, because if I'm truthful at home, then I'm really an honest person and this is fine. Um, and what we noticed in the post-communist decade um, and the, you know, the many following collapses was that this is psychologically in incorrect. This is not how people work. Um, you know, if you, you can have the most honest relationship with your son, but if you go out into the world and have to do this honest work and then go home and feed your son with the money you made doing this honest work, it is going to erode your relationship with your son. The same way as if you have a really toxic home life and a lot of unresolved problems, it's not like, oh, then you just like put on your suit and go outside in the world and everything will be fine. You will be a super well-adjusted citizen. No, people actually like carry these um, markers with them. And, and the tragedy of the post-communist East Bloc was that we thought that these things can be dichotomized and these things can be separated. And without the semi-public square, uh, semi-public 
kind of liminal space where you can reconcile the two selves and the two languages. And it turned out to be not true. And so Interintellect and a lot of other projects, like this is really a movement these days, we're trying to rebuild the semi-public like, layer in society um, or, or ensure that it's in, in places where it thankfully exists and where you didn't have to go through authoritarian you know, censorship so that it stays there. So people don't have to feel that there is a deep semantic difference between what they claim is true at home and what they claim to be true in the outside world. And there are places where you can come together and discuss, which is the kind of foundation of, of democracy um, and have discussion and actually like find the meaning and reconcile the meaning together. Um, and so Interinteract in many ways wishes to be one of these um, liminal spaces uh, or semi-public spaces um, where these conversations can, can happen. The other thing where there was a gap, and I know that the first time Tyler Cowen wrote about Interintellect, he called us a post-political movement, which I don't understand, but I love it. So yeah, let's go with that. Um, I think what I would say is most people in my community and amongst my host are kind of political orphans. They are usually very curious people, in some cases highly educated, in some cases very autodidactic, um, very articulate, and completely orphaned politically. They are neither this nor that. And not just in the US, this is the true, true, same thing in France, in the, in the UK, in some cases in Germany. And I deeply believe that politics equals participants. And so if there is new, there's a group of new participants, that means that there's a new type of politics that we don't yet have a name for. And very logically, people who are kind of caught in the middle um, and don't have a current, you know, identification uh, at avail will find each other. Um, and they will want to have a different way of engaging with each other. And I, I think that in, you know, throughout the years, you know, from places like Interinsect and other similar communities and discussion spaces, the new, hopefully very positive political powers will also arise um, as a kind of side effect of intellectual discussion. Other things are also side effects. Like we have people getting married in Interinsect all the time, which is not something that we, you know, you know about this. You told me that I was going to Jewish heaven. So this is not something that we do on purpose. It's just something that happens when you allow people to be at their best, doing what they love and hang out without stress for a long time. They will just keep getting married <laughs> and writing books. I received a book proposal today from two incredible, incredible people um, who would never otherwise have met. Um, and they are some, they, they wrote a book together and they are submitting their proposal to like really big leading um, uh, publishers in, in New York. So, you know, for these, in, in this sense, yes, when you mentioned, oh, we are replacing academia, I don't know if that's true. I always thought that we would just kind of uncouple the entertaining parts of academia um, and kind of make it so that it's not limited in space time. Because to me, in the 21st century, with like production and access to information, uh, having been revolutionized on the internet, the fact that you still have to be in college for two years to have access to intellectual abundance, or you have to be standing on one specific street in Paris or New York to have access to cultural abundance, to me, that makes no sense. Like you go to college for two years and you have a life of like 89 years. So why should you only have intellectual abundance for two years? And then they kick you out and they are like, oh, from now on, you just like read Substacks. Yay, but I just got a taste of this. I want to participate, you know, and most people are not standing in Amamasso in Paris. So why should only the people who are standing there be subjected to the best culture in the world? Um, so there is definitely this, this unbottlenecking uh, un um, going on. <laughs> I hope I hope it will be successful. And I want I want people to be, you know, in 10 years, I want you to go into any bookstore and look at all the books and be like, oh, I know all these people from Interinsect. And we already see this happening. Or, you know, people are getting on airplanes and going to new cities and they don't know anybody there. Um, and they look up the Interinsect people, the local Interinsect people. We see them in our Discord. Um, we have a lot of location channels, I think 25 or so. And if somebody is flying to Barcelona, they will be like, hey, I've never been to Spain. Who is here? And then the first thing they will do is they will meet up with uh, an Interinsect person. And then you're kind of never alone. It's like 
Judaism revamp. This is what Antonio Garcia Martinez wrote about us in Tablet. There is something to that. If you come across another intern tag member, you have to uh, welcome them in your home and give them food. Amazing. So you mentioned to me recently that you're thinking about what it means to do the Lord's work as somebody who doesn't necessarily believe in the Lord in a straightforward way. Um, I, th I think what you were saying is something about the concept of a calling being spiritual in nature. And yet for a lot of people, um, perhaps yourself included, the traditional script or the traditional language um, afforded by religion doesn't exactly work. So in the same way that politics is being unbundled and academia is unbundled, I think another important uh, field that's being unbundled, and I see this in my work, is religion. So how have you experienced the unbundling of religion in your life and um, what might it mean for you to to take the parts uh, of the post-religious <laughs> and uh, integrate them into your, your sense of uh, what you're trying to accomplish? Wow, that's a big question. Um, first of all, I don't know if personally I am post-religion. Um, I used to be very religious um, and currently, and then I used to be a militant new atheist for two years. Um, I was very angry about other stuff and that movement is great if you're angry. <laughs> Like, you know, everybody has like a hard rock phase. That's the intellectual equivalent. You just want to blast something in your car. <laughs> um, and then you kind of grow out of it. You calm down and you're like, why are these guys so angry? Um, and I, I'm definitely not there right now. I definitely, so it, it, within Interintellect, there are deeply religious people from all over. Um, and we have done multiple comparative religion salons uh, that have been amazing. Um, and I learned a lot about Buddhism, Hinduism, you know, Mormonism from people in my community, from hosts, members, um, attendees. Um, but there are a lot of agnostics. There are a lot of people who identify as spiritual, quote unquote, and they all have their own personal take um, on it, what this means to them. I think there is something about the loss of church going especially that is really hard for people and a lot of the individual solutions that people are given are just not sufficient so if your soul is aching for a type of regular togetherness that can be taken for granted so it's always there and you can go or you don't have to go and if you don't go then the next time people will be happy to see you um, and that somehow uplifts you and gives you relief and increases your resilience, you know, going to yoga with a bunch of strangers, you know, after half an hour on the subway is not going to be the same thing. And, you know, some of the online communities, uh, including mine, um, have an element of this in the four rules of hosting that I teach to hosts. Um, the third rule is the ritual space. Uh, which is that, you know, like in any type of show business, there's al always a very repetitive, very practical layer, you know, the, for the Broadway singer to get to the point where she sings the beautiful song, you know, hundreds and hundreds of people work there every day so that every mic, every lamp, everything is in place. Um, and it's the same with in my line of work in many, many ways. Um, but there's also the psychological element to how, a comfortable, well-known location like, you know, your library, your favorite cafe or church or schoolroom, you know, your anxiety is lowered because you know where you are and you know who's there. And so you can really deeply think, meditate, make connections, have the big breakthrough idea. It's very hard, as I like to say, to have a really good dance party in, in a house that might fall apart, right? You are, you are able to let go because you know that the walls and the floor are, are, going to be st are staying there um and and so you know whilst we are not a religious space this benevolent repetition is always there and people know that they can count on interintellect we have members from all over the world you know people are having babies and and having phd deadlines and going through divorces and moving to another content like a lot of things are happening it's real people um, and so it's completely normal for somebody to go away for two months and then come back to interintellect. And then we're very happy to see them. And it's great. They don't have to worry that we won't be there anymore or that something 
will fundamentally change in the ethos. Um, and I'm really proud to have been able to build this. Um, as for me, I, you know, I, I have a salon coming up, I think it's on the 2nd or 3rd of November, I forget, uh, with Jason Shan, um, which is like doing God's work slash doing good work, uh, where we look a little bit at uh, like Aristotle and whether a person really has a moral duty to, to work in a repetitive way and to actually excel at what he or she is doing. Um, I, I think that in some cases, yes, I think that a lot of people do are, you know, things that they might not be proud of when they feel that they are not doing the right thing, that they are doing something that where their skill set is not good or that they are doing it with the wrong people. Um, and I, I do think that we have kind of a moral, it's our moral duty to others to be happy ourselves in some, in some very simple Aristotelian way. I do, I do agree with that. But, but I also am constantly confronting the lack of this, like there's no secular expression for doing the Lord's work, even though you see it anecdotally in people's behavior, like, and, and you see it in the negative when somebody is not doing God's work, when somebody is kind of off key and they are struggling, they are not in the right place, not with the right people, not in the right city, not in the right relationship. Like something is off. It's almost like a physical discomfort and you can see it on this person. And if you're a Taoist, you will be like, oh, this person is not together with the Tao. You know, if you're Christian, you will think that this person is currently not in grace. Um, and it's really, there's no, you know, we kind of like dumped the religions or we think we have dumped the religions out of our lives and how we interpret the world. And now we're just lost for terms <laughs> for so many things that nevertheless everybody is experiencing. Um, and, and so I think about this a lot. Because I definitely, I don't know if I believe or not at this stage in my life, but I definitely want to do in either case, what the dumbest way of putting is doing God's work. Because otherwise, why, you know, like that's the only, whether you are building houses, teaching children, you know, keeping streets clean, um, editing a magazine, you should be doing something where you feel that you're contributing to a bigger good. And finding a good good term for that, I think, would be really helpful for continuing a positive conversation in the next years. Is it just a matter of finding a new term? Or is it that only a belief, an actual belief in transcendence, can generate the motivation needed to show up when you don't feel like showing up? And so the reason people stop going to church is because they have one bad experience or two or three I'm not trying to belittle it um, at all. Uh, maybe it's a lifetime of bad experiences. But if you're doing the Lord's work, you find a way to go even when it doesn't feel good. And we've sort of overcorrected in the opposite direction because of our belief in liberty as a political and possibly a moral good. And so um, we're chasing kind of short-term relief from tradition, but without um, appreciation of what we're giving up longitudinally. Like another way of saying it is um, one, one other way to say it is like the person that you described as, as walking around in a state of disconnect from the Tao um, in a religious community, a person would have no compunction sort of telling that person what they're doing wrong and um, shaking that person up. And for some people that could be a deeply compassionate intervention. And for other people, it just adds a kind of insult to injury um, like what, you know, you know how I should be living. Like you've got me all figured out. Like, yeah, just tell me, tell me how it is. Like, like, like I don't matter, you know, like religion has all of the answers and I'm, and I'm just like a piece of data to fit into your script. I am very pro liberty in the sense that I think you can only do truly good if you have chosen individually to do it. And I think that good work that you arrived at by your own thinking and suffering and working through it is much more valuable than following an external script. Um, and as I see my religious friends who are really in harmony with the elements in every sense of the word, also go through intense periods of doubt and, and, 
they, they, they have to work for it themselves. Um, when it comes to advice and conversion, helping other people, um, I don't, I mean, first of all, from the liberty perspective, yeah, there should be a free market of ideas in the sense that people should be given and allowed to seek a variety of different ways of solving their problems and then for them to choose one or try different ones. Um, I don't think that that's, or offering away is an infringement on somebody's individual liberty. If, if anything, it increases it because you show one more way, you increase optionality for this person. Um, but there is something about, I mean, every, everything has the same down. The downside is always the upside, yeah, and vice versa. So you have a community that works almost as a body, that instantly pain signals if somebody is doing unwell, mentally, spiritually, physically, right? Because you see this person a lot and, you know, Zohar, what's going on? You're not being yourself today. How are you? What's up? Right? Um, in some communities, you know, people actually come into your house and, you know, like there's, there's a physical closeness. Um, this is great for a bunch of things. It's great if you you know, if you look at it from the personal caretaking angle. But if, you know, Zohar decides to break out of the mold and do something really special, then you would have to contend with a bunch of people in your community who might like the old you. Um, this is the same in a marriage. It's the same in a family. Um, and, but I think that what I, what I love about humans is that we can sit down and talk. Like I have a, I have a part of my family in Israel who are extreme religious and very, very famously one brother in that, in, in one of the branches didn't want to live that religiously. He wanted out. He was a rebel and there was this huge scandal in my family and, and then they resolved it. And today he does a little bit different things. Um, he works in the private sector and, you know, has a different life, but they are on speaking terms and, and they understood that, you know, if you respect the individual individuality of this person, then you have to let him go and do his own life. Um, and, and to me, that's, or to me, that's my, my kind of go-to story when I think about this, where for a lot of people on that branch of my family, being in harmony with the self was being in harmony with the family. But for this individual, it was not. His harmony was outside the system. And the, the, the fact that we humans can do this and we very likely have produced the cultural and geographical and linguistic and political abundance that we have created is because we always had splinter groups and people who thought, this is almost what I'm seeking, but I want to do it just a, a little bit differently. Um, I, I do think that, you know, a lot of these um, cultural innovations happen when the third, the third, the third place, the semi-public space is there. I, I wasn't there, but I'm pretty sure that, for instance, this side of my family had to involve some external people, friends, teachers, et cetera, et cetera, to talk about this. And this conversation went on for a long time so that honesty can be found. And my uncle doesn't have to lie to his father that he's still ultra-Orthodox. And the father doesn't have to pretend that his son hadn't left or hasn't left. Um, and, and I think humans naturally and instinctively form these semi-public spaces when they encounter something that really needs a deep discussion. Um, but it's so much easier if these are already there. And maybe you can actually like go and, like you, you talked about this, you know, through, um, through the lens of the rabbi, that you generate these conversations almost in an Aristotelian cathartic way so that people actually talk through these um, scenarios before it happens in their life. Right. I mean, this is the whole purpose of the weekly reading, um, you know, even in, in, like in Christianity, the, 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 the sermons, you know, you, you go through the archetypical stories of humanness so that when they come up in your life, you kind of know what's up. 
and what in what framework to even approach something that is really complicated. I agree with that. I also think people get a consolation from identifying with archetypes and historic figures because they don't feel alone. So if you are experiencing familial strife and you read a story about Jacob who had two wives and two handmaids and children who are at war with one another and you sold their brother to slavery, you're like, wow, my problems seem pretty chill um, by comparison. Or else um, that, wow, it's pretty impressive that a sort of founding spiritual figure in this tradition um, must not have had you know, harmony to use your words or, you know, his, he, he found harmony. And so there's hope for me as well. And so I think, you know, being and, and novels and, and theater and all of that, that you are involved in offers that too. I just think, you know, um, old books tend to be shelling points because more people have been congregating around them for longer. And so it's like, you don't really want to invest all of your energy in reading Madame Bovary um, I mean, you can, but the amount of people that are going to want to hear your take on Ma- how Madame Bovary relates to your life will probably be smaller than like how it relates to the Bible or, you know, the Greeks, for example. <laughs> Absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, you can also go to people who are not, not, not exiled out of their own will, like Joseph, right? Like what happens when your brothers get rid of you? And you have to go and make it somewhere else. I mean, the Judeo-Christian tradition is all about the outsiders. Everybody is an outsider. Either you're an outsider because you're returning from exile, or you're an outsider because you're starting a new religion, um, or trying to like email market it, like Saint Paul. Um, and that's true about all of West, the Western canon as well. Like you read novels because they are about the individual confronting the community. Uh, whether that's Harry Potter or the Neapolitan Corset, even in the Homeric tradition, I mean, the, 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 the Homeric hero, the epic hero, is an outsider in the sense that he, or, he is the best of the Greeks, right? It's not the, they are not the, the community. They are the heroes versus or together with the community. And so that's really the, one of the most ancient of the human experiences and I definitely think that we are not done talking about them, <laughs> whether in a secular or in a religious, um, you know, context or setting. I want to wrap up with a kind of two-part question. So one is Nietzsche has this line that to be a, an author, to be a creator is actually to be an anthologist. And there's a similar idea in Walter Benjamin as well, that sort of the, the author isn't the person with original ideas, the author is the person who brings already existing things together into a new constellation. And so when I heard your story at the beginning about moving from a kind of content creator to being a host of community, I had um, a sense of, on the one hand, this is a story of continuity, a story of just taking the authorship ideal and concretizing it in the realm of human relations. And another part of me had a sense of discontinuity, which is to say you were focused on self-expression and now your task is largely to facilitate self-expression in others and kind of compose social relations by not just superimposing yourself on them, but kind of (laughs) holding space. In terms of that dialectic, I guess I'm you know, I feel similarly continuous and discontinuous with the fact that I'm both a writer, which is kind of about self-expression, but then as a teacher, um, I'm often trying to figure out what it is that people need to hear and need to say, as opposed to just what it is that I want to share. So how do you think about being a creator versus being a a communer? And then what might that um, dialectic have to say about being a good guest versus being a, a, a good host and whether we should be optimizing for both or we should know, we should simply know, am I, a, I prefer being a host or I prefer being a guest and then trying to sort of play to those strengths. Wow. To me, actually, my 
myself as a writer and myself as the founder CEO of Interact are kind of at war right now. So I don't know if I have a relaxing um, answer to, to it all. Um, it's very complicated in many, many different ways. Um, when I was young, I couldn't write about a lot of things that I wanted to write about because my parents were really well-known. And even though, you know, I had my first book published when I was 19 and I was published in all the leading literary magazines in Hungary where I lived um, as a poet. And then I was a journalist writing opinion pieces in one of the biggest wor- like world affairs magazine magazines. I always felt that I'm kind of shackled by my name. And I had to kind of pre-censor myself. Um, and I could definitely not talk about what was most important to me, which was often related to family and some stuff that I had to go through. And then there was a very brief period in my life when I felt very free that I could just write anything I want, which also came with the, (laughs) with the added, you know, ironic, um, fact that nobody cared. (laughs) Like I could write whatever I wanted, but nobody cared about it. And now I feel that people care again. But now I can't always say what I want because I'm CEO and founder of Interintellect. And I have to think about, you know, what my, what should I write that helps my community? What, but that is still really honest and self-honest and, and, and in line with what's on my mind in a given moment. And reconciling these two things, I think it's like the most fun thing I've ever done. Because I write relatively rarely, but when I do, I really found that, okay, that's the shelling point. Like I found, like, that's when my life kind of comes together in harmony. I find like my, I don't know, my own personal essay ambitions of what I want to like disclose right now and speak about very openly and where I experiment and find the beauty in the text where there, or at least like what I find beautiful or what I would like to read as a reader. But at the same time, it's still something where I feel doesn't go against my other values. Because writing is like, every piece of writing is a piece of revenge. Like you write when you want to take back power. Writers are fighting for power. And that's amazing. Like the fact that a human can take a pen and a piece of paper and take revenge on the world and say it like you think it is. That's amazing. I mean, come on, that's wonderful. But it also means that there's something inherently disruptive about writing because you think you guys are all wrong. Let me say this how it is. And it's not polite and it's not neutral and it's not about coming together in peace. Like some of the things that I've written in my life are just like 20 pages of my middle finger in like really in literary, in a, in a very literary English. That's great. But like, it has nothing to do with my ideals for building a more peaceful public arena. Uh, but when I do find where these two sides come together um, and why am I doing what I'm doing as a job and why am I writing what I'm writing about as a writer, to me, those are, the, 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 those are my moments of grace. And in every other moment when I'm only doing one of them, I kind of feel like I'm half-assing it. But those moments of grace are rare, and maybe that's good. They happen to me a couple of times a year. Maybe being a semi-public figure is a way to balance the the need for total honesty on the one hand with the sense of discretion on the other. And I wonder if, you know, I'm drawn to fabulists like Kafka, um, who kind of write in code. So in a way, like literature is also kind of semi-public in that it could be very confessional, but somehow the fact that it's written in parable form or in science fiction form or in some alternative universe gives it a permission, like you're giving an intellect to people to to tell the truth, but tell it slant. I like that. I think I'm a semi-public intellectual and a fully public um, CEO. And then I also have a fully private part of my life. Um, and that's in itself a kind of balance. Um, and and that's, that's great for me. I think if I was a big public intellectual myself, I, or if I ever become one, I will not, or I would not be able to go 
and doing transact because people would feel that, you know, there is this giant in the room and there is no way to kind of grow up to that level. I don't know. I, I, in terms of like status, I'm quite happy with where I am right now, but I definitely feel that I would need to work much more on, on the things that I write. Um, and I hope that I will be able to do that more in the future. Well, this is a, a great question, I think, to leave the listeners with in terms of being a community facilitator on the one hand and sort of being open. And then on the other hand, also having a, a self that you want to express that can't be neutral. And so finding the balance in your own life between those two, I think, is a great and important challenge. And uh, thank you so much, Anna, for taking the time to, to share your thoughts and um, for doing the work that you're doing. Thank you so much. Meditations with Zohar is produced by Jack Pombrian, Zachary Davis, and me, Zohar Atkins. It is produced in partnership with Soul Shop and Lyceum Studios. You can learn more about the show by visiting my website, ZoharAtkins.com. And if you like what you've heard, you can subscribe to my newsletters. You can also help by rating and reviewing the show so more people can discover these conversations. You can get in touch with me through my site or find me on Twitter, where I'm at Zohar Atkins. Thank you for listening and see you next time.